Amen. And thank you to our worship team. Thanks in particular to Matt and Megan for being with us again. Just so you know, we are trying to put together, pending their schedule, our schedule, everything else, we're trying to put together sort of a, a closing uh, reception celebration of their time and investment of, of life and family and ministry in this place. Hopefully details to come on that very, very quickly, but I hope you will plan on being a part of that just to say Thank you not to glorify them. They will chew my face off for doing anything such like that, but to glorify God and what they have done on behalf of this church and for the kingdom of God in this context. So please plan on uh, being a part of that as soon as we can get that put together and announced. Also, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, give a lot of gratitude to a couple people who also would not like to hear this, but believe it or not, last night in this very room was a high school prom and all of the teen angst that goes along with that. But our two senior executive vice custodial engineers, by the names of Mark Schwarzkopf and Joshua Barton, uh, transformed this place from midnight on to make it ready for church. So they would not want any applause, but give it to them anyway. That's right. So thank you to Mark and to Joshua. And then thirdly, uh, my name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel. And look, there's a, there's a cardinal rule in preaching. Never, under any circumstances, wear a t-shirt to preach, unless it happens to be Baptism Sunday. And as Ashley's already mentioned, and as Matt and the team just led us through, this morning we get to celebrate believers' baptism. And so I'm wearing a shirt that has printed on it, Ephesians 5.14, in which Paul, the apostle in Ephesians, cites Isaiah 52, Isaiah 57, Isaiah 60, and Malachi chapter 2. Rise up, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want us to talk about this idea of baptism. And I want to start off this way. I wonder how often, or if ever, you've stopped or paused and wondered, what is God's plan for my life? Now, certainly, surely at some point, you've actually had that question. And perhaps for some of you, that question was really sort of framed around, what is God's plan for my life in terms of vocation and career? Or perhaps uh, my marital status or situation. Perhaps it's even geographic living. Where am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? For some of you, you're asking, what is God's plan for my life? And what you're kind of hoping for and expecting either subconsciously or very overtly, is that God will sort of behave like a Google map or an Apple map and tell you, left here, right there, say these words, do that. And you've been sort of frustrated that God hasn't gotten that level of detail in your life. Or maybe there's even some of you that have said, what's God's plan for my life? Who cares? He's disinterested. He's disengaged, maybe even disappointed. The whole point is just to live your life, try to finish as good as you can, hurting the fewest number of people as possible along the way. Maybe that's what you think God's plan for your life is. But as it turns out, our Bible is vastly more precise and specific, telling us what God's plan for our lives are, corporately, communally, and even individually. God's plan for the world, whatever you might think about when you think about our world and what you think about when you think about our God, God's plan for our world is to redeem it because it's broken, perhaps you've heard. Vastly dysfunctional, inside out, upside down, and backwards. God's plan is to redeem it. Now, here's the shocking thing. I wouldn't do it this way, which is one of the very many reasons I'm not God. 
The way God chooses to redeem the world is through broken and redeemed people. Now, that's crazy, unless you're sovereign God who loves people. God takes broken, separate, cut-off people, and he redeems them. And then he indwells them by his spirit because of the finished work of his son. And then he unleashes them to be, are you ready for this? Little Christs, millions and millions of them all over the world. Unless you started to think that perhaps Christian was somehow a political term or a label of media. No, no, Christian literally means little anointed one, little Mashiach one. Little Christ walking around. That is God's plan for your life. And so it brings me to our big idea for this morning and what's going to carry through into hopefully early this afternoon. It goes very simply like this. Baptism is God's plan for your life. Baptism is God's plan for your life. Not just that one moment in time occurrence in which there is a significant amount of hydration applied to your person. That's great. But then everything that reverberates off of that. And so to discuss baptism being God's plan for your life. We're going to do a whirlwind helicopter level survey, well, of the entire book of Acts, because we just haven't had enough long sermons lately. No, I'm kidding. We're going to be pretty succinct and efficient, but I do want us to go to the book of Acts. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 37, but I do want to give you a survey. Sometimes we get bogged down in a particular verse or paragraph, and we miss the forest for the trees. The book of Acts, well, it comes after our Gospels, and there's a reason for that. We've spent our entire spring semester sermon series walking through the Gospel of Mark, and we've been looking at the object of our faith, Jesus, so that our faith in that object actually increases. And we've seen who this Jesus is, what he was like, what he said, what he did, that he accomplished in his life and in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection our redemption. So now what? How now shall we live? Well, for that, we have this 28-chapter volume called the book of Acts, and it opens in chapter 1 with Dr. Luke telling us it's all about the kingdom of God, and Jesus, prior to his ascension, charges the disciples, and he says, you, you broken fellowship, there's 11 of you, go ahead, roll the dice, Matthias, you're up. You're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to receive power in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now hook them, and they go. So by the time we get into chapter 2, something marvelous has happened, this thing called Pentecost. Well, it was actually already a Jewish festival, but then the Spirit of God comes just like John the Baptist preached that it would, just like Jesus said that it would over and over again. Pentecost happens. The Spirit of God comes and indwells every believer. A lot of witnesses see this and they go, whoa, those dudes are all liquored up. People says, not so. It's only nine, which is why it happened in the morning, because if it had happened at three, Peter had been like, what are you going to do? It's three. No, no, it's only 9 a.m. We're not, we're not liquored up. No, no, no. And then Peter, this Galilean fisherman in the temple courts in Jerusalem, begins to preach. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. He says that you, verse 36, leaders of Israel, you crucified the Christ. You murdered the author of life. And all of us are complicit, but this was God's plan. And they hear this, verse 7, they heard this, and they were cut to the heart, the ESV translation says. But literally, they were pierced. This Galilean fisherman's doing great Bible exposition. They were pierced. They looked on the one they were pierced. 
Said Zechariah chapter 12, and Peter's going, this is that. What God said would happen in the prophets hundreds of years ago, it's happened. This is that. Zechariah said, you will look on the one that you have pierced. And they respond, and they say, we are pierced. We have killed the author of life. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do? Just like the prophet Joel says that the nation of Israel is going to cry out and ask, what must we do? Peter says, well, this is that. Verse 38, central key verse. And Peter said to them, repent, metanoisate, second person plural imperative. Y'all repent, change your minds, rethink your thinking. You were going this way, now go this way. But it's more than that. It's more than merely turning from your sin. It is a rethinking of your thinking. It's vastly more than simply turning from your sin, although it is that. It's also rethinking your thinking. It's not just fearing consequence or getting caught or suffering some sort of harm. It's a change of heart and mind to now, I'm not a fearer of consequence. I'm a lover of virtue. I'm a pursuer of holiness, just like Jesus was. And Peter says this, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts 2.38, full disclosure, has been the stuff of making and breaking denominations. And it need not be. What do we make of this, be baptized? Well, there's a lot going on here. A lot of this we're helped out with basic, simple grammar. In our English, unfortunately, sometimes our English translations don't adequately use the term y'all. They really should. Or yuns or yous guys or whatever. They, we just say you. But there's sometimes it's second person plural. There's sometimes it's second person singular. And that matters massively. So it is you all, yous guys, y'all repent. And y'all, uh, uh, you will all receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But you individually you individually be baptized. Now, there's something going on here. The book of Acts represents this wonderful bridge between the Old Testament age where the nation of Israel was the focus and the locus of God's plan of redemption in the world. It was the nation of Israel. But there's this bridge called the book of Acts that gets us to where it's the church age, and now there's all these Gentiles, and there's all these people from outside of Israel, from places like Philistia and Nineveh and Babylon and Rome and Turkey and Greece and France that are all invited in to be ambassadors of the kingdom. So it is this bridge. And so Peter's saying, you all corporately repent, but you individually, individual souls, you be baptized. And then he says, for the forgiveness of sins. And this little three-letter Greek word, ace, E-I-S, has tripped up people for, well, thousands of years. What does this mean? To be baptized so that you can be forgiven? No, 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 no. It is baptized because of the fact that you are forgiven. Now, I know in English it's hard to discern that, but in the Greek it's very clear. Be baptized, every individual one of you, because of the forgiveness of your sins, not to accomplish the forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But this establishes the pattern. Belief precedes baptism, and not the other way around. Belief precedes baptism. If you come from a tradition in which the receipt of the Holy Spirit is contingent upon a significant level of moisturization. I just want to show you from Acts 2.38, that is incomplete. 
No, belief precedes baptism. We are baptized because of the forgiveness of our sins. And then when we are forgiven, we receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, referring to the Gentile nations. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness, Peter did, and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. This generation in which Peter is talking, not so far from ours, has believed and bought the lie that they have figured out how to have a life that works. Peter says, Now, you have to be extricated from that mindset, from that culture. What is culture? Culture is simply what most people do most of the time. And they thought they'd figured out how to get to God. Peter says, save yourselves. You don't have the power to save yourself. He's saying, repent. Think differently. John the Baptist was calling the nation of Israel to repent. Peter and the apostles are calling individual souls to repent. So watch what happens. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So we've got a big job today to try to match 3,000 we got plenty of food for 3,000 for the picnic, but this was a really big, remarkable kind of thing. It's really interesting. We have a tendency to sort of badmouth the religious people, but it turns out the gospel first goes to the religious set. The original buckle of the Bible belt was Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and it is these people who by the thousands come to faith, and they are baptized. 3,000 souls. There's a transition in the book of Acts. Well, the book of Acts continues on, and we go through all these wonderful stories of John and Peter and how they're preaching the name of Jesus, and they're beginning to experience persecution. There's some internal corruption in Acts chapter 5, and in Acts chapter 6, we get the calling of deacons so that the ministry of the word can increase. Then in Acts chapter 7, we have the martyrdom of Stephen. But in chapter 8, we have a little bit of a break in the narrative, and we have Philip, who is one of the deacons. He goes to oh, Samaria. We have the gospel going into a racially divisive context. <gasps> yes, that can happen. It must happen. Philip goes into Samaria, these half-breeds that were detested by the Jews, but the gospel cares not. The gospel goes in, and Philip is crushing it. He's absolutely rocking. People are coming to faith in droves. They're hearing the good news, the great announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem people to himself and to one another. Even Samaritan and Jew can be reconciled. Yes, it's possible in the gospel. And if he can reconcile Samaritan and Jew, he can even reconcile marriages. He can even reconcile sibling rivalries and political partisan fractures in people's lives. Yes, he can. Well, Philip's just going gangbusters, and so Peter and John go up, and they have what we call Samaritan Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit falls even on the Samaritans. Like, the Holy Spirit's not going, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, ah, Samaritan. No, he's all in. He holds nothing back. And we see this. And as soon as things are going awesome, an angel comes to Philip and says, hey, I want you to go to the desert. You know, it's, you're crushing it up here in Samaria, but I, I now want you to go to the desert, you know, where there's nobody. And it's very much like God calls Abraham out of Ur the Chaldeans, just get up and go. Which direction? Start walking. Okay. And he has to go all the way to the desert. It's several days walk. And Philip encounters an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this guy's about as far out of the people of God and the covenant community and the messianic people of Israel as you can possibly be. He's a foreigner. 
He is detestable, ceremonially speaking. Deuteronomy 23 says he has been mutilated and cut off. He cannot enter the temple. And yet he has made it all the way to Jerusalem, 1,200 miles from Ethiopia. He is the treasurer of Candace. Candace is not her name. It's a title like Pharaoh. And he represents her, and he's gone all the way to Jerusalem, but he was stopped in the parking lot. He could not go in and worship the God of Israel. How did he even know to? We don't know. Perhaps a thousand years earlier, we know that the Queen of Sheba came from Ethiopia and was taught and instructed by King Solomon. Maybe there was some vestige of biblical truth. We know that he purchases a scroll of Isaiah in Jerusalem. That's all he can do. Very, very expensive. Would have been six figures in our money today to buy a scroll of Isaiah. And he has to return to Ethiopia 1,200 miles on his chariot. And it just so happens Philip sees him and hears him reading Isaiah. And he runs up to him. And the passage that he's reading is in Isaiah 53. And the one was cut off. And he was shamed. And he was abandoned. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, Who, who is this about? Philip says, I sense an opening, evangelistically speaking. He's talking about the Messiah. Would you like to know him? And starting from that verse, the text says, Philip opened his mouth and explained about Jesus from Isaiah 53. Now that's beautiful. All scripture is preparing for and pointing to Jesus and how to be identified in Christ. And so he explains it, and the Ethiopian eunuch is ecstatic. He was not permitted worship in Jerusalem, but out here in the hinterlands where there's nothing, there's nobody he hears and he receives the gospel and he asks, what prevents me from being baptized? And the shroud of doubt begins to come over him because he was told, no, you are disqualified. You are not allowed to worship our God here because of what's been done to you. You ever felt like that? <laughs> I have. You ever been told that you can't worship the same place or you feel like that because of maybe what you have done? This guy is exactly our case study. And Philip says, no, I am a minister of the gospel. There is no reason you can't be baptized, immersed, dipped. And it just so happens that there in the middle of the barren, arid desert, which is like being on the face of the moon, if you've ever been to that part of Israel, there just happens to be some water. And not just water, deep water. Enough for the two of them to be immersed. So yes, there is a biblical pattern for baptism by immersion because it represents something very significant, our death, our burial, our being raised to walk in newness of life. And so Philip baptizes this eunuch, and he begins to rejoice, and he makes it all the way back down to Ethiopia. Ethiopia was anything south of Egypt. He is brought to life, because baptism is God's plan for your life, no matter who you are. So, so far we've had Jewish Pentecost, Samaritan Pentecost. We've had this Ethiopian's experience in chapter 8. Chapter 9 is the calling of Saul of Tarsus. And then we go to chapter 10. We're going to have yet another kind of Pentecost. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 44. Skipping ahead. This is the longest section, the longest narrative in the book of Acts. And it actually concludes at chapter 11, verse 18. Because Luke wants his Roman readers to really understand, hey, this is the thing. And he repeats himself. And he says the same thing. And he's redundant. And he repeats himself. And he says the same thing. And he's redundant. And you get to be like, okay, Luke, we got it. No, he really wants to make sure that you get it. So he repeats this. This is for the Gentiles too. Even those vile, invading Roman occupiers, even a centurion. So we're in Acts chapter 10. I'm going to just jump ahead to verse 44. 
Peter's explaining, he's been brought to this Roman centurion's house, a guy named Cornelius, and he's explaining to them how all of this works. And he's pontificating and he's prattling on like some preachers have the tendency to do. Use your imagination. While Peter is in mid-sentence, and for my third and final conclusion, Peter says, while he was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, enough of that. The Holy Spirit just drops. Like, okay, we're, we're done with that, Peter. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. They just couldn't believe it. God literally was going global. He was literally going outside the covenant community of Israel. It was for all tribes and tongues, all races and nations, all peoples could receive the Holy Spirit. Even Roman soldiers, even people like me, and so Luke wants to make sure that we really, really receive and get this, that baptism is God's plan for our life. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the, the Gentiles. You thought Samaritans were bad. At least they were just halvesies. These are full Gentiles. Philistines and Ninevites, Canaanites, Moabites and Ammonites, and East Texans. All of them are in there. Oh, yes. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, same question as the Ethiopian eunuch, is there anything preventing this? Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Implied answer, no. We got to go. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And he did. After chapter, chapter 10, we go into chapter 11. We have this wonderful launching of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. 11 all the way through 20. We have three successive missionary journeys. But in Acts chapter 19, we have the final vignette, the final episode giving us the pattern for baptisms. So go to your Bibles, Acts chapter 19. We're going to find the Apostle Paul on his third missionary journey. He's found himself in Ephesus. And he's going to encounter this last bridge to the old covenant, to the old system, to the old way. These 12, it just so happens, disciples of John the Baptist. Now this is kind of our central text. Acts chapter 19, let me get there. We find Paul on his third journey in the city of Ephesus, way off into the hinterlands. And if you've been paying attention, you saw that Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the book opens with these confused, terrified disciples in Jerusalem. It closes with Paul preaching the gospel to Nero in Rome. It's a beautiful, beautiful transition in this narrative. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. And it just so happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country. They missed each other, and he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. No, no, not disciples of Jesus. Not quite yet. Not exactly. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, what you talking about, Paulus? No, that's, that's not what it actually says. It's kind of like that. They have no idea what he's talking about. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's kind of not true. They just don't get it. Now, let me make on eye contact. Because they're disciples of John the Baptist. And we know from Mark 1 and Luke 3 and John 3 that John the Baptizer preached about the coming of the Spirit all the time. So they're either just forgetful or they're clueless or both. But the point is very important here. These people, these disciples 
were identified by the teaching of a man. They were identified by a particular group. They were identified by a particular idea or a doctrine. But they were not identified with Jesus. They had no idea about the Holy Spirit. And may I be so bold as to say, a great many Christians that I encounter, well-meaning, church-attending, Bible-reading, casserole-baking, side-hug-giving Christians, have no idea that there even is a Holy Spirit. We know that we're supposed to be better than those people who don't go to church on Sundays and then do our best. But what is God's plan for my life? Baptism is God's plan for your life, that you would die and that you would be raised to walk in newness of life and not revert to that old way of life. For many of us, you've missed the most marvelous, mysterious, majestic reality that in this age, We are not trying to adhere to some code of conduct or a rule book for righteousness. We are literally indwelled by the Spirit of God. So right to it, Paul wastes no time. Like, hey, how's your mom and them? Hey, what's been going on? What do you hear from back home? No, did you receive the Holy Spirit or not? Now, he'll write later in the book of Romans that he writes from Corinth that the mark of a Christian is not how many times they were returning champ on Bible Jeopardy. has nothing to do with it. It's not if they can actually list the 12 apostles and the 12 minor prophets in alphabetical order. It's got nothing to do with that. You either are indwelled by the Spirit of God and are a Christian, or you are not full stop. It's binary. So he just doesn't want to waste time with discussing Bible trivia. He says, are you indwelled by the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit? We We don't even know what that is. We heard some faint flicker about the Spirit, but no, we don't know. And so their lives were hollow and shallow and empty. Representing the conclusion and the closure of the nation of Israel as the primary representative of the kingdom of God. That it's not about Jewishness. It's not. Not in this age. It is about the church, those people who are mashiach who are anointed, who are Christed, who are therefore indwelled by the Spirit of God, with whom God is well pleased and wants you to be his instrument of redemption in a dark and dying and depraved world. Watch what happens. Still here in Acts 19. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. We're identified with that guy, with his teaching, with that group. Paul says, you've totally missed it. You're not incorrect, but you're dangerously incomplete. And a great many Christian is dangerously incomplete. You know some Bible trivia. Perhaps you come to church here. You might even like our ministries. But you're not really yet identified with Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection and the coming of the spirit to indwell to quite literally be the presence of God in your heart and mind and soul he literally could not be closer in this age than he is right now indwelling you and you in Christ and Christ in the father it's a scandal of grace that we are invited relationally into the very triune Godhead God's will for your life is baptism baptism is God's plan for your life 
verse 4, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. He was calling Israel to accept the kingdom, and they didn't. That's closed. I'm calling you individuals to repentance. It's a very different repentance entirely. Telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, not as national representatives of Israel. They're baptized into the identity of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, Luke wants us to understand. The final vestige of Israel now steps into this age of the church in which the Spirit of God works as individuals. Baptism is God's plan for your life. As I've already mentioned, wonderful book of Acts. It concludes with more missionary journeys. And Paul winds up in Rome. And the very final word of the book of Acts is unchained. Paul's in chains, but the gospel is unchained. It goes forth. Baptism is God's plan for your life, that there would be millions and millions of people all over the world, anointed, Christed, Mashiach, indwelled by the Spirit, accomplishing and enacting God's plan of redemption. God wants for people to trust Christ. But we say this all the time. The vast majority of human beings trust a Christian long before they trust Christ. And that is by God's design. Angels will do a much better job, I'd like to think. Angels don't preach the gospel. God leaves that to the broken, fallen, and redeemed to preach the gospel. So, Baptism is God's plan for your life. What do we take away from that? Let me give you four quick implications of how we can try to apply this to our everyday individual walking around lives. Since baptism is God's plan for your life, number one point goes very simply like this. The New Testament knows no unbaptized Christian. Completely foreign concept. We've sort of marginalize the ordinance of baptism a lot in our day and age because, well, it's just, you know, sometimes it's inconvenient, it's kind of weird, and it's very, very public, intentionally so. I still hear this from time to time. Listen, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really into that whole born-again stuff. Baptism really isn't for me. But listen, one of the primary points of water baptism is that it makes it impossible to be a secret disciple. In fact, those two terms are contradictory it's like saying jumbo shrimp or Dodge Ram or Microsoft Works. They don't make sense together, okay? <laughs> Secret disciple doesn't make any sense. You can't do that by definition. And Jesus, by the way, doesn't have a whole lot of interest or use for secret disciples. To be baptized in a public venue in the Roman Empire was an invitation to surrender your life, just like Jesus had done, and that was God's plan. You were in Constantinople, which to be Istanbul, and before that's Byzantium and all these other names. And you said, I'm going to be baptized in the public square fountain. You were telling all the people who were watching that your life was now subject. Yes, it is. Is he Lord? Is he king? Or isn't he? You and I didn't get to vote for him. He died. He was buried. He was resurrected. He ascended, and he will come again. That's very good news. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Wait a minute, you said the New Testament knows no unbaptized Christian. Ah, what about the thief on the cross? Well, for starters, he was nailed there. Not really an option for him. Number two, 
that is pre-Christianity. He's an Old Testament saint. He's a believer. He trusts Christ, but Jesus hasn't died, hasn't been buried, hasn't been resurrected, and there is no Holy Spirit yet. So that's not an action. There's no defense for a Christian in the New Testament age not being baptized. Emperor Constantine in the fourth century was baptized right before he died, but as he's going into the water, he stuck out his right arm, hedging his bets. I'm going to baptize everything except for this, because I might still need to grasp my sword and kill some folks. No, Constantine, you've missed the point entirely. You died. You didn't just get hydrated or moisturized. You died. This is your funeral, and we're watching your rebirth, as Ashley said this morning. It's still, that kind of life is still a life relying on its own strength, and it's not ever the pattern of Scripture or the call in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in every individual life. Number two, baptism is an outward symbol of an inward reality. I had the privilege this morning of meeting with our five candidates for baptism when we walked through this, and I asked them, what is this on my finger? And they said, a freckle. I said, no, look closely. What is this? And they said, a wedding ring. I said, yes, this is a symbol of a covenant in which I joyfully find myself. But I walk around with this outward symbol of this inward reality to remind everybody that I encounter that, sorry, I'm off the market, and many hearts are crushed on a daily basis. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Even with a T-shirt, it's, it's terrible. But equally important, not only is it a symbol for everyone else in my community to see, it's a symbol to me. Because I'm prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love and the spouse to whom I am married. And so I, oh yeah, wait a second. This is my reality. This is an outward symbol of an inward reality. And then I do something totally ghastly. Sorry in advance. I go, and it burns, it burns, it burns to come off. But am I still married? I am. This does not make me married. This demonstrates that I am married. And it reminds my community, it reminds me. It is an outward symbol. Same way, baptism symbolically represents everyone in our covenant community to them that the old self relied solely on the self and it was buried in the death of Christ. Therefore, behaviors and beliefs of that old self are no longer appropriate. He said, that's just not who we are anymore. That you died. You don't, you don't say those things. You don't go off and do those things. And then we employ the time-tested technique of the awkward side hug and we go, no, 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 Joe, that's not what we do. Come over here. We don't wag our fingers and condemn and judge. No, no, no. I saw you bubble. I watched it. The old you who acted and thought that way died. Let him sink. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. And our community reminds one another lovingly. And we are reminded ourselves when we begin to have doubts and struggles, was any of this really real? You know what? I am married. She does love me for no good reason whatsoever. He does love me for no good reason whatsoever other than he chooses to. Oh, he has his reason for loving me. I'm just not it. He just loves me because it's what he's like. It's what he does. And so I have to be reminded that I bubbled, I was buried, and I was raised to walk in newness of life. Third point, baptism is about death to life. It's the funeral for your old, separated, or dead existence. We've already had one of our two ordinances this morning. We had communion. The other, of course, is baptism. 
both of these are symbolizing the death of Christ in our association, our identification, our appropriation of that death. Now, very specifically, very precisely, from the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes this in chapter 2. Paul says, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, a spiritual setting apart. That God did this by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, his finished work, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. God did it with Jesus, and it's like you were there. In the mind of God, you were. So regardless of how you might feel one particular cranky morning, one particular fussy Friday, wait a second, what matters is that in the mind of God, I was there. And God's opinion matters more than even my own. Now you must stand on faith on that truth with all of your weight. It's absolutely vital to be identified with that. We've studied this wonderful survey in Acts where Luke shows what it looks like to move forward in a journey with Jesus to become more like him. We do this with one another and in the midst of one another. We are publicly identified as having been dead, buried, and raised to walk in newness of life by grace as indwelled by the Spirit of God. And so just like Paul asks those 12 disciples, have you received the Spirit? And you might say, what you talking about, Eric? Spirit? That sounds kind of freaky-deaky, hokey-pokey. No. It is God's plan for your life that you would be ever eternally indwelled by the very third member of the Godhead Trinity. What is the point of baptism? It's the sign of the new covenant. The church is the new covenant community of the Spirit. It's how you become identified so that you can be encouraged and supported and edified and admonished by the people around you. It's also an encouragement to this body to see that God is getting it done, even in this context, that he is doing what he promised. Fourth, Baptism is about public identification with Christ. This is not where we just celebrate how awesome you are, because <laughs> you're not. You are associated, identified with Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. This is where we talk about you being initiated into the covenant community. In the Old Testament, there was a one-time sign of circumcision. That one got to be fairly unpopular in the church a long time ago for various obvious reasons. We don't do that one anymore. The one-time sign for the church age is baptism, but I want you to recognize from Acts chapter 19, there is biblical precedent for rebaptism. Some of these disciples were associated with a man or a group or a teaching. But Paul says, I want you, you must be associated and identified with Jesus, and they submit to rebaptism. For some of you, I don't know your story. Perhaps you've never been baptized. Perhaps you were sprinkled, perhaps you were poured, and I'm not telling you that's not good enough. I'm not, no baptism is good enough to accomplish salvation. But for some of you, you've never been publicly identified with Christ, that the old you has died and the new has come raised to walk in newness of life. That's what baptism is about publicly. So let me be a little bit spontaneous with some of you. Perhaps you've never been baptized, and perhaps you weren't planning on being so today. Or perhaps you were baptized on when you were eight days old or some other time that you have no recollection of because some parent or some grandparent or uncle or friend or counselor dragged you and put you in a lake and said, surprise, you're saved, or something. 
Maybe for some of you, on all three of our floors, watching remotely, going to be tough for you to get here. But if you've never been baptized in the biblical model of baptism, we're going to invite you to be baptized today. In addition to these five that we've already talked with, we've got some extra towels, we've got some extra dark t-shirts. Come on. And if you're not so sure, then by the time I say amen, I want you to have prayed about it. We'll leave that invitation out there. See, God really wants us to think of ourselves as in Christ because of his finished work so that it influences and impacts our thinking and our feeling and our doing every moment of our lives. And so when those struggles of life come, not if, we wonder, what is God doing? We go, ah, I'm going down the path of the old me that bubbled. And we are preaching little sermons to our own souls. We say, ah, I died, but I'm alive in Christ. I believe the gospel, the good news. I lack for nothing. He's giving me everything I need for life and godliness. Even to have abundance which I can now share my life for you generously. The person and the work of Jesus is my identity, the thing that is always true about me. Baptism is God's plan for your life. So I'm not inviting you to try harder to be better. What we see in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, the Roman centurion is, you are now set free from being responsible for how good you can be. Hey, for some of you, that's pretty good news. Because you've blown it by sunrise every single day. Me too. You are set free from trying to be the best you you can be. Because it's never, ever, ever, ever going to even approximate the first step toward God. But Jesus paid it all. And as we sing this morning, we are invited to have blessed assurance. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And those we've already... Uh, screened and talked with this morning about baptism, they are now free to go and start the process of getting changed. The rest of you, I want to invite you to pray with me. And as we consider God's plan for our life in baptism, perhaps there are some of you that would like to discuss very briefly the procedure of baptism, even this morning. We'll get you some towels and some t-shirts. If that's you, I want you to plan on meeting me here at the front right after we're done. No pressure, no coercion, no persuasion, nor manipulation just is the Spirit of God saying, hey, it's time for the old you to bubble, for you to be raised to walk in newness of life and be identified with a church family that loves you, cares for you, and wants your best. So Father, as we contemplate and ponder these things, perhaps there are children or adults, that that is your call in their life, that they would be baptized, publicly identified in Christ today. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, as your people, you will remind us through your Word that this is nothing magical that happens in this moisture, but it symbolizes the most marvelous thing in all the cosmos, that you sent your Son to die in our place as our substitute, the innocent for the guilty. And not only that, but you have filled us with your righteousness, that we would be about your plan of redemption in this dark and dying world. So, Father, I do pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that you would lead them by your Spirit irresistibly, that they would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light, that you would lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus, and that they would explore baptism perhaps even today. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us that we've already had our funeral, and the next one is not that big of a deal. And in between, may we live as though you actually had a call in our lives to be instrumental in the redemption of people that you love. So Father, have your way. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus.
Amen.